Okay, so what'd you come up with? What'd you come up with in your, your groups? We disagree. Okay, you disagree? False? It's written by God through men. Okay. What else did you come up with? Does that, does that sum it up? Yeah? Go ahead. Okay. Yeah, actually, I mean, the Bible that we have wasn't isn't the original language that that was given, right? Originally, and so it's been interpreted by men, but but ultimately inspired by God. <laughs> so ignore Drew. He's doing his robot voice over there. Um, so this is an interesting question, and, and and there's a lot of ways to look at it and talk through it. Um, but what I found, and we're going to assume that you, that we all believe that this is a book inspired by God, um, that God inspired men to write, and so therefore it's from God. Um, but there's a lot of ways to talk about it, and what I found is a lot of times we either lean one way or the other in, 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 what, in whether or not we believe it's, it's written by men or written by God. I would, I would guess most of us lean sometimes too far to the God side. And this is really a tension that needs to be held. And so, um, what, 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 yeah, let me ask this question. What would happen if you emphasized too much that it was a book written by man only? What, what kind, how would you view the book if you, if you viewed it as if it was by men only? Historical documentation. Okay, just a, just a historical document, just, just history. That's all it is, okay? Huh? Okay, a book of wisdom that, that maybe doesn't have any relevance to your life, right? Your group's done? Sorry. <laughs> Anthony, will, he'll have an answer to every question. Just by the way. So I'm just limiting his now. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, you would just assume it's it's full of errors, can't really be trusted. Is it fair that I answer this kind of No, it's not fair. You were here too. Genesis. <laughs> okay, so, yeah, here's the thing. By men only, we, we view it as a historical book, therefore God is kind of reduced to this deistic God who, this is a story about a, a God, and he's not really involved, not really relevant. Um, a book that we can debate, maybe, and, and to prove points, but not really, uh, and it's reduced to intellectual, or, or something that rarely convicts us or confronts us, doesn't have any relevance to our life, if we just kind of reduce it to, or if we emphasize too much that it's a book written by men. What about by God? If we emphasize too much that it's by God? What do we reduce the Bible to? Anthony? Well, um, we can make it like really metaphorical and like, it's a symbol that has like manifold meanings that we go down and Yeah. Yeah, in fact, there was a guy named Origen in church history, and uh, he, he viewed every, most things as allegory. And so he would read it and go, hmm, what that really is describing is, and he would just kind of grasp for some deeper meaning. Um, Origin is oftentimes an or, the origin of many heresies. Actually, you can 
kind of view them that way. So it becomes a magic fairy book that, that, yeah, that we can just really make it say whatever we want it to say. And oftentimes I've seen, I've noticed this. I don't know if you've ever been tempted to do this. Just what does God have to say to me? Just open the Bible and point and, hmm, go get a donkey. I don't know what that has to do with me. Why would Jesus say that to me? You know. Okay. What else? Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you think, right? If if there's no no context in which we can apply, okay. So this is what they were going through. If this is just some book that was dropped out of the sky, can I really trust that it's going to be relevant to me? Maybe. Yeah. I think sometimes we can. I think we have a, we can have a tendency to view it as a self help book, because God has God can fix my problems with this book. And so, what does God have to say to my problems? And we go to it with very specific questions that maybe the Bible doesn't answer. Um, it, we can also look for some sort of emotional high from it. Get warm fuzzies. That's what I need. Uh, if I read it, I'll feel really good about myself, and then I can go throughout my day feeling great that I read. So there's there's lots of things that, that can happen um, when we emphasize too much, and so there's a tension that needs to be be held. And so our goal with Ryan and I, this first part, um, normally there's going to be two parts, and in, in one person will, will do each part each each night. So it'll be it'll be broken up into two halves. And normally each week, um, and and the reason we do that is because we want to we want to be able to walk through the text and talk through what what's happening. Because here's here's what we we really believe: the Bible, when it comes to it, studying it and interpreting it, there's a there's a process in which we need to understand this historical document. So we need to understand who wrote it and why it was written and all that. And we call that the hermeneutical process. But there's also a spiritual process. It's a book unlike any other book, and so God really can speak through it. And the Spirit can reveal things to us. Um, through His Word, but we need to understand the, historical, the uh, hermeneutical process and also the recognize there's a spiritual process. And so Ryan's going to kind of champion this hermeneutical process, and I'm going to talk about the other here in a little bit. Hermeneutical process, hermeneutics is just a fancy word for interpretation of documents, more likely. I mean, I guess you could do hermeneutics on a movie or a song, but it's basically a, a study of a document so that you can understand its intended meaning and therefore its significance for whatever you're using that document. So here's we're, we're going to have uh, we have these bullet points on your on your notes here, and I want to talk about five basic assumptions um, regarding the process of reading the Bible with intention. Um, there's an intentional way of reading the Bible. Like Scott said, like opening up and to a, a story about Balaam is, it can be helpful and it can be really abused. Just flipping to a random psalm can be helpful. It can even, in some ways, be like it can feed your soul, but it you can abuse it too, if you don't read it with intention. And therefore, we need to have some sort of plan. Um, this happens to be the plan that most of us. Um, I would say that most of kind of the Orthodox Protestant church uses, or at least should, and it's what most of us at Sunnybrook use. It's called the um, historical grammatical process. And you'll see why those first two words are important. Grammatical process. 
This is our basic set of rules that we use to read the scriptures. And whenever we engage with the scriptures using these rules, there are some basic assumptions that we all ought to, at least to some degree, agree on before we go into this process. Um, you might have some questions about it. I'm not going to spend a lot of time defending these five assumptions. Just know these are the five assumptions that we're going to be making this summer as we read Colossians. And we do that because we think they're right and we think we have good reasons to believe that they're right. But if you have any additional questions, actually, I've got to leave in the middle of this. If you have additional questions, bother Drew with them um, afterwards. But let's talk about these five assumptions. Um, one other caveat. Assumptions are not bad. They're only, like, they're only getting in your way when you just have a problem admitting that you have them. So assumptions can be good. First assumption, we are going to believe that Colossians specifically, but these are all true about the entire um, scriptures, all six books. Colossians is sufficient. Along with the other 65 books of the Bible, Colossians is sufficient. Sufficient for what? Um, the Bible doesn't, like Scott's pointed out, the Bible doesn't, point, doesn't have answers to all of your questions. Um, I don't think God really cares if you buy um, whole milk or 2%. Um, the Bible doesn't have an answer for such things. But the Bible does tell us a couple of things. It tells us who God is, who we are, and what the relationship between the two parties should look like, and what its current status is. That's what the Bible does teach us. And anything that you might need to know in that regard, who is God, who am I, and what is the, the sense of the relationship between me and God, the Bible answers those questions, and it is sufficient to answer those questions. So if you have a question, now there are, there are fine points of theology that we can debate until the cows come home, but the fundamentals of who God is, who we are, and what the relationship between the two um, is, is answered by the Bible. So it is sufficient for that. And right on the heels of that, the second assumption, we're going to say the Bible has a clarity to it. The Bible was written by usually common men to, and the, uh, the, uh, the uh, recipients were common men and women. These were not the like educated PhDs at some seminary writing a really long theological treatises to other people. These were normal letters of normal people written to normal people. And therefore we can assume that we as normal people can understand the basic message of Scripture. There are some complicated parts, but that might even be by design. Basi the, the basic message of Scripture is clear. The third assumption we're going to make is that the Bible the Bible sits over us as an authority. And as the absolute authority at that. Um, whatever the Bible teaches, whatever it has truth to bear on, it is the final word. Pun intended. It is the final authority. Um, this, there's a doctrine that rose up. Um, they, it was always, I think, in place in the church um, but the Reformation did a good job of bringing it to the forefront. It's called sola scriptura, which is the idea that the Bible is not the only way to know and discern truth. There, you have a reason. You have like an ability to reason. There is church tradition. There is your conscience. There are other ways to discern truth. But if any of those ever disagree with Scripture, they are by definition wrong. Scripture always wins. It is the primary authority, and everything else kind of sits underneath it. The fourth characteristic. The Bible, and therefore Colossians, is necessary. The primary way that we know 
about the gospel is through scripture. You can find lots of exemptions to the rule or exceptions to the rule in ways where the Lord speaks through dreams and through His Spirit and there's this miraculous encounter. He speaks to Saul through this incredible encounter on the Damascus Road. Yet, the Bible is the primary way that the message of Christ, the message of God to His people, is delivered to the church. And therefore, I believe if the gospel is necessary to have life, the Bible is necessary too because it's the testimony of the gospel. And then the fifth one, Put it up here, right out of room. The Bible is unified. The Old Testament and the New Testament are not at odds with one another. Colossians is not at odds with, with Ephesians, and it is not at odds with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and so on and so forth. There are areas of tension. There might be apparent contradictions, but these are, these are not in place to such a degree that they unravel the integrity of the Scriptures. The Scriptures are a cohesive unit, and Jesus said as much. And therefore, if you can die and get yourself out of the grave to never die again, when you start to say things like the Bible is unified, when you make these kind of claims, then you get to be right. So these are the five basic um, assumptions we have as we read through Colossians this summer. And again, we'd love to answer questions because I know that I'm flying through hundreds of pages of textbooks here, but these are the basic ideas about the Bible that we believe and therefore will influence how we study the Scriptures. The next bullet there, it says, them, everyone, and us. Um, you're going to read some things in Colossians. You'll read some things. Well, here's a good example. This is one that we, everyone has a, a bit of an issue with. In 1 Corinthians 14, it says that women shouldn't speak in church. Um, do we just read that? It, yeah. Do we just read that and then walk into Sunnybrook on Sunday morning and start to hush all the women... No, no, no. Did, did you hear what Paul says? The Bible is sufficient for everything we need to know. I, mean, I really have a question about how women should behave in church. And it's quite clear that they shouldn't speak. And that it's in charge. It's the authority. So you can't talk. But that's... You're, you're, you're ripping something out of Scripture and slapping it down on Sunnybrook. And I think if Paul were here today, he'd be like, I didn't write that letter to Sunnybrook. What are you guys talking about? And so we have to have a process of translating the truths of Scripture 2,000 years across an ocean, across languages, across cultures, across governmental systems, across churches. And, that, and I think that we can really just kind of sum it up in this idea of them, everyone, and us. And so here's what we do. When we first read a text, we ask, what was true for them? In Colossians' case, what was Paul saying to the church at Colossae? I don't want to know anything more than that. First step, what was he saying to the church at Colossae? Specifically, to the church at Colossae. Next week we'll talk about the fact that Paul was praying for them, that he was grateful for them, that he was praying that God's will would be known by them. That's his prayer for Colossae. Paul never prayed for you. It's important to remember that. But there are some truths in there that kind of apply across the board. So what was specific about Colossae? And then we can say, well, based on what was the truth to them, we can say, what is the truth to everybody or everyone? What in Colossians is true for all people at all time, across all languages and all cultures, no matter where you're located, no matter what kind of governmental system, no matter what your church looks like, if you are a follower of Christ, what truths in, in uh, the letter to the Colossians also apply to all believers for all time? 
from that point, once we have those, we call them universal truths, we could then say, okay, so how does this apply in Nelda's life, speaking English in 2016, living in Stillwater, Oklahoma? And it's only when we go that route. What was true for them? Okay, let's boil that down to what was true for everybody at all time. And then if we can boil that down, we say, now we can talk about what's true for us. And it's this process that's very, very important because I think we have a, a tendency, when we, especially when we treat the Bible like it's only divine and there's no human element to it, we have a tendency to just say, well, what does Colossians say to me? What's Paul praying about for me? Paul's not praying for you. He's praying for somebody else. But we can eavesdrop on his conversation with them. We can read their mail and learn something about Paul and learn something about God and about Christ and therefore pull that out and apply it to us. So, this is the, this is the basic way that we're going to teach every week. The first person will deal with this, maybe dive into this a little bit, and the second person is going to spend a lot of time with what does this mean for us. So, you might be asking, okay, this sounds like an admirable idea, but how do I deal, how do I find out what was true for them? What did Paul want the Colossian church to hear? Well, there, that brings us to the next two bullets. It's important that we realize ancient documents were written into specific situations and for a specific purpose. Written into a specific situation. We need to know, if we're going to read Colossians, well, we need to know who wrote this. What's Paul's story? What's his theology? What does he think about Jesus? How does he interact with the church? What's his relationship to the audience? Who is the audience? Who's this church? Who are these people in Colossae? Where is Colossae? What language do they speak? What's their culture like? Who's in charge? How long is their church? What's their church look like? What's the social structures in this church? We need to know the situation. Drew's going to talk about There's a very specific situation going on in the church at Colossae that Paul is addressing. We, we miss significant chunks of the letter if we don't at least have an awareness or a working knowledge of that situation known commonly as the Colossian heresy. We need to know this. This is saying this is a situational document. We need some more details to read the them part of it correctly. And this document was written for a purpose. Paul is not just jotting down his random set of thoughts. He is an incredibly educated man. Um, ed educated in some of the finest um, schools, so to speak, both in Jerusalem and in Antioch. Uh, two of the major educational centers of the, of the ancient world. And when he puts pen to paper, he has a very real purpose for it. There's a logic behind it. There's a flow. He knows what he's doing. Even when Paul, famous for going off on tangents, he always comes back and ties it up. What is his purpose for... And so we can't... And if we want to understand Colossians 1, say 3 through 14 we'll be dealing with next week... You, Paul is not so crazy as to detach verses 3 through 14 from verses 1 and 2 and then from verses 15 through 20. You can't just pull your favorite line out of your favorite movie and then give it to Scott and expect him to know the whole movie. You've got you to watch the movie. You can't pull two lines out of a book and give it to Chelsea and expect her to understand the rest of the book. You've got to read the whole book. Same thing with Colossians. You've got to read the whole letter, you've got to read verses in context, read everything around it. I don't think that it's responsible, actually, to read anything less than a paragraph. That's my personal conviction. It's not the Lord speaking, that's Ryan. I think that the paragraph level is kind of the smallest unit of thought that you should be reading in Scripture. It's if, you're, if you're asking for, about meaning. 
Now, there are other, like Scott's going to talk about, other ways where you can reflect on small sections. But if you're asking about what does the text mean, paragraphs, because Paul has, a mean, he has an intent behind why he crafts things a certain way. Um, we won't get into it a whole lot, but a subset of the purpose is the fact that this is a literary document and therefore it has a genre. We are going to only be dealing with letter um, this, this semester so or the summer, so um, that will be... That'll kind of take care of itself. We're only going to be dealing with one genre. Um, the final thing I want to, to mention before I hand it over to Scott is that all of this can look like a cold, hard science where we can figure things out and wrestle the scriptures to the ground. And it's important to do this process. I think it's important to do it well, but it's important to do it with humility and an awareness of our own inability to be perfect. And when you're playing around with the words given by a very perfect God, it's important to recognize your own smallness. And, to, and, and I think that it's wise to, to tread lightly on certain subjects. There are lots of things testified to in Scripture that we can be very confident about. There are others that we really can't be, and therefore we should exercise caution and wisdom when proclaiming, Thus saith the Lord. And it's important to realize that as limited interpreters... We can't just do this by ourselves. We have to do this in the context of biblical community with other Spirit-filled believers and that we can trust both each other and the Spirit in us. I trust the Spirit, and I trust the Spirit working through the testimony of church history. If you think that you've come up with a new idea about God in 2016, you are likely committing heresy. It's quite improbable that the church would go for 2,000 years getting something wrong and that we would stumble on it. So when you go against church history, you better be right. It's probably more wise to just submit to church history. Not all of it. There's some wisdom and some discernment necessary, but uh, it's important to remember that just having a process or a, a method doesn't make us experts. We have to submit to, I think, the church and the Spirit himself. Which goes into what Scott wants to talk yeah, about. Yeah, because not, not only are we limited in terms of our ability to, to interpret things, but um, we're just we're limited creatures. Um, so, so it's a good question to ask whenever you're sitting down to study the Bible, and maybe not every time, but periodically you should be asking this question, why does God want me to study His Bible? Why does God want me to read His Word? Have you ever asked that question? God, why do you want me to read this? Well, like, what are you hoping to accomplish here? What, what's, what's, the, what's the goal here? Um, it'd, be a, it'd be a question worth sitting and, and, and wrestling with and praying and talking to God about. Because I believe that the Spirit of God works through the Word of God and the people of God to transform us into the image of Christ. And so I, I think that ultimately that's, that's what's at stake. That's what God is doing. He's... He's, that His Spirit is, can speak through and can work through His Word and His people and, and transform us and, and mold us and shape us into Christ's image. And that's, that's what's going on. And, and so simply reading a book and, and studying a book, it doesn't happen that, that way. And because information is, is, is not enough. So, those of you who have kids, raise your hand if you have kids. Okay, so a few of us. Yep. Um, Kids are, we, we in people, humans, are really complicated creatures. So if you ask a kid, you ask a five-year-old, um, should you obey mommy and daddy? Right? You ask that question. They will be like, yes. They will 
emphatically they'll be excited to answer because they love answering, they love having the right answer to the question, yes. But do they always obey? No. So they know they're supposed to obey, and yet they don't always obey. So there's a gap somewhere between what they know and what they do. And so the goal of parenting isn't to just give them more information. Just The goal isn't to say, well, I don't understand. You said you're always supposed to obey. Why don't you always obey? No, we don't, we don't put that kind of weight on them because, because we know it in ourselves. Jesus went after the Pharisees with the same thing. He, was, he would say to them, don't you know the Scriptures? Like, don't you, like, if you knew Moses, you would know who I am. You would see me coming. And, and these are men who were raised up in this educational process where they were one by one plucked off and sent back to their father's trade if they didn't have what it takes to, to know the Torah and to know um, the Scriptures and to be able to regurgitate it and memorize it and teach it. And so one by one, these guys rose to the top and became these religious leaders, teachers of the law, Pharisees, experts. And Jesus is saying to them, don't you know the Scriptures? So he's not, he's not going after them because they don't have enough information, is what I'm, is what I'm saying. He's going after something else. Um, because the truth is, there is a gap between what we know and what we do. So your doctor sits down with you and asks you a question. Should you eat, eat right and exercise? And now, as adults, we don't emphatically go, yes. We go, yes, you know, yes, right? Because we know the gap exists. We know, we know the things that we're supposed to do, and we don't always do them. So there's something else going on. And information really just is not enough. Um, the issue is we're not just thinking creatures. We're reading a book right now as a staff called You Are What You Love and by James something Smith, James K. Smith, I don't know. James Smith. Um, great book, but you know he, he's talking about in that that we're not we're not thinking creatures. We're not brains on a stick. We're actually we're worshiping creatures. We 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 have loves. We're shaped by what we love. Um, the reason that the reason that we don't do what we know we ought to do is because we often love something greater. Like the reason that we don't eat right all the time and exercise isn't because we don't have enough information. There might be things that we're eating that we literally think they're healthy, and maybe they're not. So that could be a lack of information. But overall, I would say 99% of the time, it's not, it's not, a lack, it's not that we don't know things are unhealthy. It's that we, we, we just love something greater than doing what we know we should do because we're worshiping creatures. We're, we're creatures who love. And so um, when God has transformed our loves and our longings, um, then, then our thoughts and our attitudes and our actions are sure to follow, um, because because we're we're worshiping creatures. John Calvin says that we are we are idle factories. We just we're just made to worship, and 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 those things that we love and worship, God has to come in and 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 work on and transform, and we have to surrender to Him. And it, there's this process. It's a spiritual process that's going on. So it's not just information. So um, I want to read a, a few verses, and then we'll. We'll actually look at a verse in Colossians that we'll talk about it. But you write these references down. Philippians 1, 9 through 11. He says, um, And it is my prayer that you that you love, that your love 
may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness. Okay? Being filled with the fruit of righteousness, that, that doesn't happen by reading a book. Right? That process just doesn't take place by picking up a book and sitting down and reading it for 15, 20 minutes every day. There, there, he's describing something. He says, he says that your love may abound more and more and with knowledge and all discernment. Right? So, so knowledge plays a part. Information plays a part, but it's not, it's not enough. Uh, Ephesians 3, 16 through 19. This is, this is my favorite prayer of Paul's. Uh, in in the in his in his letters, maybe top five scriptures um, altogether. Uh, Paul's Paul's it's in verse fourteen. He starts by describing this is what he he's praying for the the people in Ephesus. But he he says that according to the riches of his glory, he God may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ. Now, he's going to say this. He's going to ask. He's going to say he wants them to know something that surpasses knowledge. How do you do that? He says in verse 19, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the fullness of God. Wow. So how do, you, how do you grow to know the love of Christ? How do you know something that surpasses knowledge? How do you be filled to the fullness of God? Again, that's not something that happens by just reading a book. There's a process involved. The Holy Spirit is at work here. And, and so we have to, be, we have to understand this, this, this side of it in order for, for God to do His work in and, in and through us. And then in Colossians 1, 9 and 10, this is a... This is a section of scripture we'll we'll talk about next week. Paul says, "And so from the from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding." So he says, "I want you to be filled with knowledge. I want you to be filled with the knowledge of God's will, with all spiritual wisdom." Okay, what's that? Well, it doesn't come from a book. Spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Again, like these things that He, he wants them to grow in the knowledge of God, but why? He wants them to, so that they'll walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, so they'll be um, bearing fruit in every good work. Again, those aren't things that happen by just reading a book. So Scripture pr- plays a very key role in this, this process of spiritual formation, this process of being conformed into the image of Christ. Um, that, that God is, is doing something to us. And, and so because of that, God is doing something to us to transform us into His image. And so because of that, this is why the book, this is why the Bible cannot be, we should not seek to control or manipulate it. This is why it's not just a book written by men. It's, it's a book written by God. Therefore, it stands outside of us and it, and it actually judges us. We submit to its authority. We don't try to control and manipulate it. We, we, we approach it and say, we approach it with this yes, Lord heart and mentality. Whatever I'm going to read, whatever I'm going to see here that I, I sense you're, you're asking of me, you're confronting in me, I'm going to have a yes, Lord heart and a yes, Lord attitude. 
because this is God's word standing out against us and 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 speaking to us and and there's a process. Um, information alone is safe because it information is safe. I can do what I want with it. I can control and manipulate it. I can reject it or accept it. But transformation or formation, this process that God's doing, now that's a little more intrusive. That can be dangerous because it could mean the death of you and me. So, spiritual formation is a mysterious process. How, Paul says, I want you to know some, know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That's, that's a mysterious process. And, and it's a work of the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 2.13 says, And we impart um, this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. So, that whole section in, in 1 Corinthians 2 is a great scripture to kind of understand, okay, um, the reason that, that non-believers don't understand what's going on in the Bible is because there's a, there's a spiritual element that they can't, you have to have the Spirit in order to, to see Christ in this way. Um, the Bible says that. that the, the only way you can say Jesus is Lord is because the Spirit has done a work in you to help you say that, to help you see that. That's 1 Corinthians 12, is it 12? Beginning of 1 Corinthians 12. 1, 2, 3, somewhere around there. Um, so this verse, you're all familiar, probably mostly familiar with this verse. 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is, is breathed out by God, or God-breathed, and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, or rebuking, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. So in order for Scripture to be used by the Spirit of God to form us into His image, um, we must approach it being willing to surrender to it, being willing to allow it to teach us, to, re- to reproof us, rebuke us, to correct us, to train us, to complete us, to equip us. And, and so there's a, there's a heart that says, okay, Lord, I, whatever you want to do in me through, through your Word, I, I want you to do. There's a, there's a process. Um, in this study, we're going to we're going to we're going to hit this as a method. Now, there's there's lots of ways to read the Bible. Um, you can read it devotionally. You can you can like like he referenced it. You can you can take a verse and meditate on a scripture, and I think that you can God can speak. You can memorize verses, right? That that can be part of your. It's just memorizing a verse or two for a week. Um, you can study. You can pick, pick up like we're going to do for Colossians. You can understand the background. You can write. Um, there's lots of methods. Now, I will say this. Someone asked me, what do you think about devotional reading versus studying the Bible? The more you understand this process, the, more, the better you'll be able to do a devotional process. If, if you're a novice in, when it comes to the Word, if you're in terms of, if, if you don't understand how to get a historical and grammatical understanding of what's going on, then, then you, you could be you could be accused of just reading all kinds of things in the text and not seeing what, what maybe what what the author intended. And so, the more you know how to study the Bible, the better you'll be able to meditate on the Bible. The better you'll be able to read it devotionally. The better you'll be able to memorize it because you're not just picking a verse out and putting on a coffee mug and saying, "This is going to be my life verse." You know, Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. When when that that verse has a very specific context, and and oftentimes is. It's kind of misused, and, 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 and so we can be guilty of that. So I, 
there's lots of methods to read the Bible. I don't, every time I read the Bible, I don't study the Bible the way we're going to teach it and study it tonight. I sit down with it, and I, I read it devotionally, and I, I, but I always think through this process. I don't, I don't try to understand the Bible without working through this process. But the, the thing is, um, it, what we're wanting is a, a motive over a method. We're wanting a heart over just a technique. So motive over method. So when your motive is to know and love God, you will desire to plumb the depths, the depths of God's Word. When your motive is to know and love God, you'll allow the text to have mastery over you. You'll approach it with, with um, humility, and with honesty, and with receptivity. You'll trust the community of faith, like Ryan talked about, the community that he's put us in. Um, you'll, you'll trust the orthodox of tradition. You'll, you'll, you'll trust and you'll humble yourselves um, to that process. You'll seek, to, you'll seek a transforming encounter with God. So, let me ask this question. This is a rhetorical question for you to think and pray about later. It's a question I ask students um, often, hopefully. Is what would it mean for you to surrender your time to God when you spend time in His Word? What would it mean for you to, to, to surrender that time to Him? What would it mean for Him to have control when you're reading His Word? That's a question I'd... I'd, I'd Write down and think about and pray about later. Well, when you sit down and read His Word, what would it mean for you to, to give that control, give control to Him during that time? For Him to speak loudest um, and, not, and, and not just you do all the talking. So we're going to take a five-minute break. During this time, you can get up, use the restroom if you want. Um, the restroom's right back there through the kitchen. Uh, but if you, if you want also to spend some time talking amongst your people, uh, which of these sides that the hermeneutical side, technical side, or the, um, you know, treating it like just a book written by men, or treating it like a book only written by God, um, which, which do you tend to lean towards when, when you read the Bible, and why? Ready, go. All right, we're going to go ahead and get started. jump into the second half of tonight. Normally what will be taking place, although it'll look a little bit different every night, but normally the first half will be walking through the text and the second half will be walking through kind of a larger theme uh, from that text. Um, Tonight they kind of laid the groundwork for us and I want to kind of introduce us a little bit to this book and and some of the background of this book. Um, As as Ryan said, these letters are not just kind of generic teachings that the Apostle Paul is just kind of putting out universally. They are written to real people in real situations and are written for reasons pertaining to those situations usually. And so for that reason, when we read an epistle, it's a lot like um, listening to one side of a phone conversation. Um, so like when you are, I don't know if you've ever been around your, your friend or your spouse who's talking on the phone to someone and, and you're trying to, to make out what the conversation is actually about, you, you sort of understand because you hear what they're saying, but you don't, even when they, like, they respond to a question, you don't know what that question was on the other end of the line. Um, and, and so that's what, that's what reading an epistle is, is you are getting one side of the conversation. And for us to be able to understand it as best we can, we want to do our work 
to try to get the other side of the conversation, to try and see what is Paul writing to, what situation is he responding to. And, and so that's what we want to try to do a little bit here this evening um, before we jump into the text next week. I guess we actually will jump just a little bit. I'll, I'll uh, read to you. you. You should have it on your paper there, the first couple of verses of this, uh, of this letter. It says, Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. So this answers a few of our questions right off the bat. Who wrote this book? Who is the author? It says right there, Paul, the apostle. And it says, and Timothy. There are a couple of different epistles in which Paul will do this, but it's Paul doing the writing, Paul doing the talking. He's just kind of saying, Timothy's with me. He agrees with me in this. And so Paul is the one writing here. It says he calls himself an apostle. And that word apostle in the Greek, apostolos, means what? A sent one, one who is sent, and it has behind it not just the meaning of me kind of sending my kid to go grab something for me, but one who is sent on my behalf. So he, he represents me, he comes with my authority, and, and Paul is sent not just by the church. There are a number of apostles in the church, um, but there are a small handful, 13 to be exact, that we kind of refer to as capital A apostles, because they're not just sent out by the church to do missions work or to plant other churches. They are sent by Christ Himself. They have had a direct relationship with Jesus and witnessed Him after His resurrection. And Jesus is the one who commissioned them. So they go with the authority of Jesus. That's why we believe this to be the Word of God because Paul is writing under the authority of Jesus. Um, Paul is... Um, most of us probably know his story, has a very interesting biography. He fills us in on some of the details in Philippians 3, um, where he calls himself um, a Hebrew of Hebrews, um, that he is the ultimate Jew. He is a Jew of Jews, um, and, and that is that he grew up studying the Torah, studying the Old Testament scriptures his whole life, grew up faithful to that, studied under perhaps the most famous rabbi of the time, or one of them, a guy by the name of Gamaliel. Um, so knew his stuff. Um, he, when he says he's a Hebrew of Hebrews, literally what he means is I'm a Hebrew-speaking Hebrew. That is, unlike most Jews in the Roman Empire in the ancient world, I speak Hebrew and therefore study the scriptures in Hebrew, not just in Greek like everybody else around him did. So I, I know the word, and, and he goes through all his credentials. And not only was he a good Jew, but he was passionate for the law to the extent that he was a part of the Pharisaic sect. He was a Pharisee and, and passionate about knowing the word, passionate about keeping Judaism pure, which is why he hated this Christian sect that was um, popping up around his time, and he began to persecute the church because of his great passion for Judaism, because of his great passion for his Jewish roots and his faith. And then, of course, you know the story, Acts 9, on the way to Damascus, with a letter from the high priest saying that he can go arrest any Christians there. Um, he's on his way there, and he gets struck down, blinded by this light on the road. Jesus speaks to him, and within a day or two's time, he is converted becomes a Christian. Not only does he become a Christian, not only does he become a part of the church, but he becomes one sent out for the church, an apostle. Specifically, Paul calls himself an apostle to the Gentiles. 
That's what he says. He's, I am one sent out by Jesus to the Gentiles. And, and this has honestly been strange for me. I, I wrestled with this question a lot in my life. If there is any, any man, any person on the face of the planet in the first century who would have been the ideal apostle to the Jews, it's Paul. I mean, he goes, he goes into any town, tells them he's a student of Gamaliel, and immediately he has their respect. Right? He's, a, he's a Pharisee. He knows their scriptures. He spent all his life growing up in synagogues, studying the scriptures, studying the Torah. He knows this stuff. So why does God call him? Why does Jesus send him out, not to the Jews, but to the Gentiles? Now he does, when he goes into towns, he goes into synagogues. He tries to speak to the Jews, but he recognizes that he is primarily, his primary mission is reaching out to the Gentiles. And, and I wrestled with that a little bit. It was actually in studying this book that some stuff kind of started clicking with me, and I started realizing a few things, which we'll get to in just a bit. So the author is Paul. Uh, next is the date. When did he write this? And I'm going to give you somewhat of a, a, a wide window, a 10-year window from about A.D. 52 to 61. Eighty fifty two to sixty one, and this really does. This comes down to where you believe Paul wrote this from. We know he says in the very last verse of this letter, "Remember my chains," which means he's writing more than likely he's writing from prison. As a matter of fact, Colossians is classified along with three other letters as one of the prison epistles, ones that were written while Paul was arrested, imprisoned. Um, to some capacity. So that is um, Ephesians, no, 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 sorry. Um, yeah, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon. The prison epistles that he writes these out um, to these places. And so the question is though, where, which prison? Where is he imprisoned at? And the kind of the traditional understanding is that he is writing this from Rome, which if you, if you read the book of Acts, in Acts 28, he finally gets to Rome. He's under house arrest there. And, and he would have gotten uh, to, to Rome around A.D. 61. And so if he gets to Rome in AD 61, the earliest, if he's writing from Rome, the earliest he could have written Colossians is 61. Spring of 61, later in 61, maybe even into 62. Here's the problem with this, is that um, we don't know the precise date, but somewhere in the area of 60 to 61, maybe 62, um, Colossae was destroyed by a massive earthquake. Um, as a matter of fact, this kind of tri-city area here, Hierapolis, Laodicea, and Colossae, all of them were destroyed by a massive earthquake. Um, Laodicea gets rebuilt. We know this because in 96 AD, John is writing to it in the book of Revelation, right? It's one of the seven churches. Hierapolis gets rebuilt. Colossae, from what we can tell, never gets rebuilt. And so it's not impossible that Paul wrote from Rome in AD 61. The window is just very small. If he did, then it was one of the last pieces of mail to go into Colossae before it gets destroyed, which is kind of crazy uh, to think about. I'm actually starting to kind of move towards an earlier day, which would have been that he writes from Ephesus. Um, we, we, we don't have recorded that he was specifically in prison in Ephesus, but we do know that he was in Ephesus for three years, and a lot of that doesn't get recorded. We also know that he writes from Ephesus to, to the church in Corinth and says that he has gone through many hardships and struggles there. 
And so it would make sense that he might be imprisoned there. Um, and there's a couple other reasons involving some travel stuff. Um, there's a guy named, uh, this is a little side note for you, but there's a guy named Onesimus who is a slave of a man in Colossae. I've misspelled Colossae here. Get a little A there. Okay. Um, so there's, he's a slave of a guy in Colossae name. Anybody know? Philemon. And he runs away from Colossae and goes to some town where he runs into Paul. Paul converts him and sends him back to Philemon with a letter that we know as, there you go, Philemon. And in that letter he says, hey, I am sending this guy back to you, but you need to know Philemon, he is not a slave, he is your brother now. And so he, he, he calls on Philemon to release him, this slave. And then he, he seems to kind of indicate that, hey, he's useful to me, would you send him back? Um, and so there's some people who go, like in the ancient world, Colossae, Onesimus goes all the way to Rome. Paul sends him all the way back and asks for Philemon, by the way, to turn around and send him right back. That's like months of travel right there back then. That's not, that's not an airliner Okay, that's a, a two-hour trip one way. And so there's a lot of people think, man, it would make more sense if he's doing this from Ephesus. We know that he was in Ephesus in 52 to about 55, A.D. 52 to 55. And so if he's writing from there, that is, is when this book was written. Regardless, whether it's 52 or 62, 52 or 61, what's kind of remarkable about this book is Colossians has some of the highest, what we call Christology, in the New Testament, a very high teaching on the, the person of Jesus, that he was the one who is there, he, was, um, he is in the image of God, that he was with God before time began, that, that all things were created through him and for him. These amazing statements made about Jesus. And, and regardless, 51 or 62, that's really early on in the church's history to be speaking like that at least according to most people who don't believe the Bible uh, or, or don't believe in Christianity. One of the most famous accusations, kind of leveled, uh, most common accusations leveled against Christianity is that the doctrines about Jesus and all that he did were things that developed slowly over time. That, you know, the first people who really knew him knew him just as a really good teacher. And over time, these stories started building up about maybe he did a few miracles, and maybe he raised from the dead, and maybe, you know, 200 years later, somebody says, actually, I think he raised from the dead, and I think he may have been God. But Colossians 52, okay, so within 20 years of Jesus, the same generation, Paul is already calling him God, saying that all the fullness of God is in this man, Jesus. And, and so... Early on, they had a high view of Jesus, Colossians shows us. So, Paul says he is the author. He writes to the faithful saints, the saints and faithful brothers in Colossae. Um, so, that's what he says in verse 2. Um, commenting on the city of Colossae, this is difficult to know a whole lot about this city. Um, the, the New Testament scholar J.B. Lightfoot says this, that Colossae, the church in Colossae, is without doubt the least important church to which any epistle of Paul is addressed. Um, that it's bottom of the totem pole of all the churches that Paul writes letters to. Colossae falls at the bottom, mainly because the city itself falls at the bottom. Paul primarily, in his, in his missionary journeys, plants churches in large urban epicenters like Ephesus like Philippi, like Corinth, is where he likes to go. Colossae actually is not a place, as far as we know, that he's ever even been. 
he didn't plant this church. Chapter 1, verse 7 tells us that his, his fellow worker, kind of a guy working under him by the name of Epaphras, planted this church. And, and so this is this small little town, this kind of agricultural town um, in this tri-city area in Asia Minor, which is now modern-day Turkey. And Paul spent a fair amount of time in Asia Minor, but just not over there in Colossae. And so we don't know a whole lot about this town, A, because it's small, B, and this is really fascinating, I did not know this, it has never been excavated. Um, archaeologists have never been to this town, have never opened up this town before. There, are, there was some statement um, in the last several months um, about a, an Australian-led team that may be trying to get in there in the next year or two, um, which would be really fascinating um, if, if that happens, but no one has ever actually kind of dug up this site yet and explored it very much. Um, at one point, it was a prominent town, but by Paul's uh, time, most of the population of this area had kind of moved to Laodicea or Hierapolis, leaving Colossae to be this kind of smaller little agricultural area. Um, and that's probably why when the earthquake comes, these ones are worth rebuilding. Colossae is not and, and doesn't get rebuilt. Um, there is evidence of, even though Asia Minor is predominantly a Gentile area, there is some evidence, um, we have some documents that say that uh, a couple hundred years earlier, a large Jewish population had been moved here. Um, and, and it's such the point that there was maybe ten to 11,000 in this region um, at around the time of Paul's writing. So it's primarily Gentile, but there is a, a strong Jewish population there. Now, we said this, written to real people in a real situation. So what we want to try to figure out is what is the real situation and that is the million-dollar question that is still debated by a lot of people to this day. What specifically is Paul responding to? What issue is popping up? What problem may be taking place? Um, it is debated because like the city of Colossae itself, we don't know a lot about the situation. We don't know a lot about the church. Um, unlike a number of these other cities like Ephesus and Philippi and Corinth, it's never mentioned in the book of Acts. So we don't get extra information there. There's not other letters written. We, we do have the letter to Philemon written to in Colossae, but there's not other letters written to the church like 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians to where we can look at another one and kind of figure some stuff out about it. There's just not much mentioned, and so it gets difficult actually to determine what exactly is Paul writing about, what exactly is he responding to. When we don't have a lot of background information, when we don't have a lot of other textual stuff to go on from other parts of the Bible, our main way of trying to determine what the situation is, what the issue is, what is causing Paul to write, is by looking at the letter itself. And specifically, we want to look at these two things. What themes or what subjects does Paul continually come back to? And what does he lift up a lot in his writing? Because if he keeps trying to hammer on one, one doctrine or one belief, then there's a good chance that that doctrine or belief was under attack in that church. What you'll see in, in Colossians is, as we talked about, a, a lot of talk about the fullness of Jesus and the greatness of Him as deity and the one who in all the fullness of God dwells and all these things. And so there seems to be definitely some of that. You can also tell, so you can tell by what He lifts up and you can tell by what He attacks. So if Paul attacks something a lot, then you have a pretty good idea he's attacking it because that's an issue that's coming up in that church or around those people. Most of the attacking verses... 
um, polemical, as we say. Most of the polemical writing comes in chapter 2. Um, chapter 2, verse 8, and then there's this section, verses 16 through 23. Let me read to you um, from verse 8 real quick. It's kind of a summary one. Chapter 2, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So he says, whatever this is, see to that no one, that you do not get wrapped up, that you do not get trapped up, that you do not get deceived or taken captive by these um, human traditions, by philosophy, by, by um, empty uh, or these elemental spirits of the world. And there's a fair amount of debate on even what that phrase means. Um, but then he'll go into a little bit more detail in verses 16 through 23. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you about three minutes kind of with your group there, have one of you read that, read that little section of Scripture. Chapter 2, verses 16 through 23, and, and while one of you is kind of reading out loud, I want the other ones of you to start listing out what are the issues that Paul is hammering on here. What are the things that, he, that seem to be at play um, in this church and in this letter, or at least around this church? So take a few minutes, one of you read, the others of you write it out, and then we'll talk about that a little bit. 16 through 23, yeah. All right. I want to talk for a second. So you kind of talked with your group a little bit. I want to kind of hear from you guys out loud. What are, what are some of the, the issues coming up that Paul mentions in that section right there? Alec, yes. <laughs> I'm asking about the list, Alec. <laughs> what, what he so he says first thing: don't let anybody pass judgment on you in regards to food, drink. Okay. What else? Holy days. I heard Sabbath. What else? What else gets mentioned in there? Okay, false humility. Someone is preaching with a false humility. Okay. Worship of angels gets talked about. What else does he dog in there? Okay. Visions. Okay, that they are not holding on, holding steadfast to the head, which is who? Not holding to Jesus. Anything else you see there? Okay, asceticism becomes. Huge. This gets mentioned several times in there. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch are big rules for these people. And, and he says, specifically referring to things that perish with their use, which would probably mean food. You use it and it goes away. But he says, do not handle, like these are big rules for whoever this is that Paul is ta- talking towards. What else might you see in there? 
says they are puffed up without reason by their sensuous mind. That's kind of a weird thing to kind of translate, but it's, it's literally kind of like fleshly mind. Um, we always think fleshly as in like immoral and sexual immorality and all that stuff, but a lot of times it's just kind of like worldly, um, unspiritual, okay? There's this whole thing based in the, okay, so here's the, here's the question that we still don't know exactly. Based in the elemental spirits, that could be something more like the elementary principles, kind of the basic principles of religion or all those things, but we'll give you another one. Human tradition, he used this phrase, self-made religion. So what we're left to do is to look at a list like this and try and kind of get our minds around, so what might be the problem behind all of this? And again, there is a fair amount of date, but, or a fair amount of debate about this, but let me just kind of show you that this food, holy days, Sabbath, um, human tradition, um, asceticism, okay, um, some would say this, if, if Paul is, we don't know when he says angel worship, if he means actual worship of angels, or if he just means, if that's Paul's kind of, um, I don't know if you want to say sarcastic way of describing an over-fascination with angels, being overly fascinated with, being too kind of excited about, and that would have been um, a Jewish thing for some people around that time. So all of these things, uh, issues of food and asceticism and what you can eat and what you can eat and all those things, holy days, Sabbath, angel worship, human tradition, all of those things point to Judaism of some kind, Jewishness. Say not, not every one of these fits perfectly in that, which we'll touch on in just a second, but there definitely does seem to be some strain of that in this, that there is a strong emphasis on Judaism, and this was always, actually, this, this makes sense, because this was always kind of coming after the churches that Paul was involved with, and that he was planting, these Gentile churches. It came in two forms. It came, first of all, just in um, your basic, like, Jewish person, who really, honestly, um, would have been angered over these pagan Gentile people who were pirating their scriptures to then claim that this false Messiah meant that they were allowed to be a part of the people of God. For 2,000 years, there's only been one people group who's been a part of the people of God, the Jews, and they have been, well, not super faithful in that, but to varying degrees at certain points, trying to stay faithful to that, suffering for that. And now all of a sudden, and they've followed all these rules that make them Jewish, circumcision and, and keeping the Sabbath and following Holy Day festivals and be careful about what they eat, all of these things. And now there are these Gentiles who want to come in and say, hey, we're a part of this too now. And, and they did not like that, and they, they hated that idea. And so often there would be pressure from, of course, the Jewish people. Paul himself was one of those people, putting pressure on the church because of that. The second form was what we call Judaizers, as Alec, our genius back there, mentioned, um, which were Jewish Christians. So these were Christians um, who believed that Jesus was the Messiah, but they believed that in order to be a part of the people of God, in order to be a part of the church, you couldn't just believe in Jesus, you had to also be Jewish. 
And so, I mean, it's totally okay if you Gentiles from Colossae or if you Gentiles from Ephesus want to be a part of the church, but you're going to have to be Jewish, which means you're going to have to get circumcised. And it means you're going to have to stop eating bacon and shellfish and all of those things. I know. For some of you, bacon is a higher thing than circumcision. That's like the harder thing. But this is what he's saying is like, this is, you cannot... You're going to have to live like a Jew. After all, the Messiah you claim to believe in, Jewish. All of his apostles, Jewish. All of his original followers, Jewish. So why do you think that we're changing the rules now just to let Gentiles in? And so Judaizers would follow Paul after he plants a church of these Gentile people, and they would come into these Gentiles and say, they would say, hey, great that you believe in Jesus and all, but there's more to the story. If you really want to be in on this, you're going to need to converts to Judaism as a Christian. And so this becomes a big deal. This, by the way, in answer to the question, why does Paul use, or why does God call the Jew of Jews, the ultimate Jew, to be an apostle to the Gentiles? This, I believe, is why. Because Paul fights tooth and nail for the freedom and the inclusion of these Gentile people in the church. And if it's just another Gentile saying, no, 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 Gentiles can be in too, all the Jews look at him and say, yeah, of course you're going to say that. You're a Gentile. And by the way, you got no authority because what do you know about the Scriptures? Paul has the ability and the authority to stand up and say, I've spent my whole life studying this text and I can tell you that all of it is pointed towards this one man, Jesus. And all of it hinted at this fact that Jesus would open up the kingdom of God to more than just Jewish people. And Paul has credentials and authority to say that as a Pharisee saying that Gentiles ought to be in is crazy, but it makes sense as to why God might call a man like Paul to do that. Now, there are a couple of things. Like I said, if angel worship literally means angel worship, and when we get to uh, some of the stuff about the elemental spirits, it, there's some stuff that smells of what we call like these pagan mystery cults that kind of sprung up around the area, specifically a lot in kind of Asia Minor. These mystery cults that were fascinated with kind of mysterious things like elemental spirits or, or a worship of angels or those things. It kind of smells of that. And so some people think what is happening is that there is this heresy or this belief system that was kind of a, a synchristic kind of a mix-up of Judaism and pagan mystery cults that it kind of blended together and was pushing in on the church at that point. Um, syncretism was fairly common back then for religious beliefs to kind of mix, um, but in honesty, it wasn't very common. In fact, I don't know if we have any record of Judaism blending with other religions. Um, the Jews did a pretty good job of trying to make sure that their religion stayed somewhat pure. And so it, that could have been what's happening. More than likely, I believe that it's Jewish um, influence pushing in on the church from the outside and also maybe some pagan or some Greek philosophical um, kind of views pushing in on the church as well. That there's maybe pressure from multiple sides that Paul is kind of writing to speak against a little bit. Um, so this much we do know, that Paul is concerned that there are outside forces that are telling this young new church that what they have discovered in Jesus is not enough. It might be Jews saying, Jesus is a false Messiah and he is not the way to God. It might be Judaizers coming in and saying, Jesus is great and I'm glad you believe in him, but if you really want to be initiated into this people of God, to the kingdom of God, you're going to have to start following some of the Jewish practices as well. It might be Greeks 
coming in and saying, hey, I'm glad that you're following this Jesus fellow. But let me tell you, if you really want to grow in maturity, if you really want to grow in fullness, which is a word that Paul will use, grow in your fullness, then you're going to need to know some of these deeper secrets that we can kind of reveal to you a little bit. Whatever it is, it is these people pressing in saying you need Jesus plus. And Paul writes to say this very emphatically, no, Jesus is enough and you are complete in Him. Probably the theme verse, the theme verses or statement for this whole letter is found in chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. Chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. I want to read that to you real quick. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. And so what, what he says is, basically, this is part of the message, major messages of Colossians. What saved you is also what matures you. What justified you is also what sanctified you. What brought you in is what you root yourself in. Just as you received Jesus as Lord, so root yourself in Him and grow in Him. It's not receive Jesus as Lord and then root yourself in Jewish practices to make sure you grow strong and mature. No, no, no. What you need is what you already have, is what Paul says. What you need is Jesus. What you need is a greater vision of Him. He'll go on to say, verses 8 through 10, we read 8, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human traditions, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Listen to this. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him. One translation says this, You have, you have been given fullness in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. You have all you need in Jesus, is what he says to him. So what does this have to do with us today? How does this matter for us today? Um, about three or four years ago, probably, probably about four now, I'm sitting in a store. Um, I'm, I'm waiting to, to get like to look at my cell phone. I'm, I'm in a kind of a cell phone store and I'm waiting to kind of um, deal with a customer rep or whoever that is, someone who's going to help me. And while I'm waiting, I just decide to sit down and I crack open my Bible because I'm teaching on Ephesians that night. And so I open it up to Ephesians and I start to read and study, kind of brush up a little bit. As I'm reading, this man comes by and he asked me, what are you, what are you reading there? And I told him, well, I'm, I'm just reading through Ephesians. And he tells me, I love Ephesians. That is, that's one of my favorite books. And, and so we strike up a conversation. The, the guy's name was Paul. Um, he was, I know, kind of interesting. Um, and and he, he was probably mid-60s or something like that. And so he and I strike up a conversation. We start talking. And we decide to meet together and have coffee. And Paul and I would, for the next three and a half years, meet together somewhat regularly to have coffee and talk. Um, but but I, I discovered, actually, and I can't remember if it was in that moment or if it was the first time when we met coffee, or had coffee, that yes, it's true that Paul loved the book of Ephesians, and Paul loved the New Testament, but Paul loved the Old Testament even, but Paul was not a Christian. He used to be a Christian, or at least I think he used to be a Christian. He, he grew up in church. He grew up in a Christian home. His mom was a Sunday school teacher. He loved Ephesians, believed Ephesians to be true, Loved the New Testament, believed it to be true, but he was not a Christian. Paul, somewhere along the line, someone had told Paul, 
that yes, the New Testament is true, yes, the Bible is true, but, but Jesus, as great as He is, is just one revelation of who God really was. There's actually several that came before Him. You may have heard of them, you know, Abraham and Moses, Buddha, back a little ways, okay, Buddha. Um, and, and, and so Jesus is one of them and, in this kind of series, and then there was a few that came after Him. The, the next one after Him was Muhammad who gave us a revelation of who God is. And then finally, this guy by the name of Baha'u'llah. Um, and, and Paul was what's called a Baha'i. He was part of the Baha'i faith that believed that all the major religions are a revelation of God, kind of revealing more and more of him as time went on. And so Paul had bought into this, sold his life out to this idea, still has his life sold out to it today. Um, and and, and here's, here's what went down. I don't know exactly how it happened. But this much I know, that Paul grew up knowing and believing the Scriptures, loving letters like Ephesians, loving books like Colossians, and yet there was some point in Paul's life in which he felt like, for whatever reason, that something was not fully there yet. That like he, there was something missing in him, that he, didn't, he wasn't experiencing the full joy that he ought to be experiencing in his spiritual life, that, that he wasn't as mature as he should be or as vibrant as he should be in his faith, and he needed something more. And then somebody came along and told him, I got something more for you, and Paul bought it, hook, line, and sinker. What Paul, what Paul failed to understand is that he all, already had everything that he needed. He just needed to see that more clearly. Now listen, most of us in here aren't ever going to go that route. Most of us aren't going to buy into a whole new religion trying to find our way out of this kind of rut that we're in. But the truth is, as human beings, all of us have this strange fascination with what is next and what is new. And every one of us at any given point in our life find ourselves feeling like maybe there ought to be more, like I ought to be growing more, like, like maybe I should be experiencing more, you know, spiritually, like I ought to be getting more mature, like I shouldn't feel so dry. And, and the temptation is always to go to something new. Like I said, it may not be a new religion, but a lot of times it's, man, I think I just need a new church. I think maybe I, I just need like a new, a new technique for growing closer to God. I think I need, or, or maybe we do it in a more like American way. And that is that like I'll still do the Jesus thing, but like I'll try to fill out my identity, that thing of me that's lacking in something else. I'm going to be like the best mom who raises her kids, you know, to only like organic food and homeschool. I'm going to do, and pour my whole identity into being this amazing mom. I'm going to be this guy who just, uh, just, builds his way, moves his way up the ladder in success because like there is something, yes, I love my church. Yes, I love reading the Bible, but there is something lacking. And if I could just get a little bit more something in my life to form my identity, to give me greater purpose. And the message of Colossians is you already have it. The message of Colossians is you do not need something new. What you need is a more clear picture of what you already have in Jesus. And that's why this book is so great, because there are few books that will give you more bang for your buck as far as efficiency, just four short chapters, but will lift up for you all that Jesus is and all that you have in Him and all that you are in Him, like the book of Colossians. 
And so I'm excited for us this summer to get to dig into this book a little bit and get a greater understanding, not just of it, but of the Jesus Christ that it describes and the kind of things that Jesus makes out of us as Gentiles, people who were thought to forever not be a part of what God was doing. Paul makes very clear the mystery is this, that God had us in mind from the beginning and he made it all happen through Jesus. That's what we're going to be talking about this summer and I'm excited for that. Um, Let me pray for us and we'll wrap up. Dear God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for I thank you for Jesus. And and this is my prayer in line with what Scott said. Not just that we would know more. I really do want to know more. I want us to know Jesus better. I want us to get a bigger picture of him. But I pray that your um, your spirit would stir our hearts up for him, that, that we wouldn't just know, but we would worship more, that we would love him more, that we would um, have a greater hunger and desire for Him that will drive us. I pray that you would do that in us through your word this week. I ask you that in the name of Jesus. Amen.